0: Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. morning, church. If you brought your Bibles, I want you to turn to Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm. Most of you, I'm thinking, have probably read this one before. (laughs) In fact, it's uh, probably King David's most recognized, most beloved, most famous uh, psalm. It's one that we often go to in times of trial or uncertainty, even times of loss. And since Psalm 23 kind of reads... You know, like an older man is looking back over his life and the lessons that he's learned, and it's kind of got that calm, nostalgic tone. Some Bible scholars think that it was written by David after he became king of Judah and Israel, maybe even 20, 30 years after. Uh, Older tradition puts this psalm in the period of the rebellion of David's son Absalom fact is we really don't know for sure. But whatever the case, it's it's one of those psalms that countless believers throughout history have been able to draw comfort and hope from. If you've got the place there, I'm actually going to be reading in the Christian Standard Bible if you don't have that translation. I think that's in your sermon notes or if you've got the Handy Dandy Bible app on your phone, uh, you can pull it up, but beginning in verse 1 it says the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right path for his namesake. And even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're thankful that your word doesn't simply contain truth. It is truth. And I pray that you would bless it as it's read, as it's proclaimed, or that you'd speak to our hearts this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, students of history will recall how in the throes of World War II, with the fate of humanity on the line, the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill stood up and he addressed the House of Commons. Now, his task was a difficult one. He needed to provide his people with some hope in the face of the seemingly uh, unstoppable German war machine. Now, at the same time, he had to be honest. The English people knew what was happening in the continent of Europe. And so on January 22nd, 1941, Churchill stood before the gathered government officials and declared, Far be it from me to paint a rosy picture of the future. Indeed, I do not think we should be justified in using any but the most somber tones and colors while our people our empire, and indeed the whole English-speaking world are passing through a dark and deadly valley. But I should be failing in my duty if on the otherwise I were not to convey the true impression that a great nation is getting into its war stride. You see, Churchill tackled this challenge of instilling hope in his people while at the same time being very honest about their dark and difficult And deadly valley in World War II. Which really brings me to the big question this morning. When have you walked through a dark, difficult, or deadly valley? And to what or or whom did you turn for hope, for peace? Well, today we turn to the 23rd Psalm to instill hope. You see, there's three marks here we see of the good shepherd's care. We see that he provides for his people. He guides for his people. He loves his people. And we're going to kind of unpack that as we we go along. So that's already given us three pegs to kind of hang our hats on this morning. Here in Psalm 23, David, first of all, shows us the provision of the good shepherd. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Now, if you want to drill down a little bit further, there's four specific characteristics of the provision of the good shepherd that I want you to notice this morning. The first is that the Lord's provision is powerful. Why? Well, (laughs) look who it comes from. Of the many different names that we have for God, David actually chose to use the covenant name The Lord. Now, when you read that in the Bible and you see Lord and all in caps, that's basically just an English translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. Yahweh. That's the the name that he chose to open this poem. It's the personal name that God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. That name, Yahweh, the great I am. That's the ultimate statement of, of self existence, self sufficiency, and also of immediate presence. And this is the holy name that David chose to connect to the Good Shepherd, the one who gives life and breath to all of humanity, the one who parted the waters of the Red Sea so that his people could walk across on dry ground. This is the one who provides for his sheep, the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God provides for every need that his people have. So the Lord's provision is powerful. I want you to also notice the Lord's provision is personal. You see, David could have chosen a war metaphor to describe the Lord—warrior, king, sword, and shield. Those would have been appropriate, and you know what—they've they've, they're seen in other parts of the Scripture. But instead, David opted for a personal one: shepherd. And it's interesting, you know, the the use of the word my, it just enhances this. You see, God wasn't just any shepherd. He was David's shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, having been a shepherd himself prior to becoming a warrior and later king, David was well acquainted with the shepherd's responsibilities and expectations. He knew how difficult sheep were to lead and that their sole survival rested on the ability of their shepherd. He understood that shepherds would have to watch over their flock for up to 24 hours a day. And so he chose the metaphor of a shepherd because it communicates a personal God who cares deeply about his people. You see, the good shepherd is not some cold, detached, far-off observer. He is an up-close and personally involved protector of those who belong to him. Oh, but but ponder this. How should the fact that God's provision for us is personal affect the way we view our own circumstances? Hmm. Well, you know, I think it tells us that God knows us. He knows what we need, knows what we don't need. It also tells us that we can trust that, that our circumstances no matter how pleasant or how dire, are tailor-made for our good and God's glory. Wait, what? What did you say? Yes, Romans 8.28 is actually true. <laughs> All things for our good. Well, We'll unpack that thought a little bit later on in the, in the message. But you know what? The fact that God's provision is personal, it also tells me that finding ourselves in a situation of need ought to drive us to God not away from him, to God, not with complaints, but with prayers for our provision and and for our contentment. So the Lord's provision, it's powerful. It's also personal. And the Lord's provision is plentiful. You see, because the Lord is his shepherd, the psalmist can declare, I have what I need. The dry climate of the Middle East Uh, their sheep are, are very dependent upon their shepherd to find food, to find water, to find protection. And every day, the shepherd would lead those flocks to new green pastures and provide enough grass for them to eat for the day. And that phrase, he makes me lie down, indicates that they had had enough to eat. The sheep also needed daily access to quiet waters, which the shepherd faithfully provided. And like those sheep, you and I, well, we're dependent on God to provide for all of our needs. Now, all of our wants? No, that's a whole another matter. You know, contrary to what the, the the name it, claim it, word of faith crowd would tell you, you really don't get to get that pink Cadillac convertible just because you ask God. Okay, didn't work that way. It's all about what we need. Will He supply our needs? Yes. All of our wants? Not necessarily. But God promises to take care of us. David, a few Psalms later, uh, Psalm 37, he says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. The Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, he says, My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In fact, Christ Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, Not to worry about what you're going to eat or drink or or wear, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. That's Matthew 6.33. So because the Lord is our shepherd, we have what we need. So we see that the Lord's provision is powerful, it's personal, it's plentiful, but guess what? The Lord's provision is also purposeful. See, sheep have a reputation for being helpless and needing someone to lead and to feed them. They're inherently timid. Usually they're too afraid to lie down on their own, even for their own good. But in that rare moment of confidence and trust in their shepherd, sheep will lie down when they think they're free from fear or hunger. We see, David's confidence and trust was in his good shepherd. He was convinced that the Lord was providing exactly what he needed for his own good. Oh, but here's a question. If the Lord's provision is in fact personal and purposeful, then why do we find it so stinking difficult to just rest in the Lord's provision? Okay, maybe it's because we we don't have a teachable spirit. We haven't allowed God to, to train us as we look back on the past and all the ways that he's provided for us in the past to train us for the future. Or maybe it's because we struggle to trust anyone with our needs. And so we have little faith in God's ability and desire to care for us. Or maybe, just maybe, because... God doesn't always provide in the way we think he should. That's not what I asked for, God. You're not doing it right. Okay, remember, he provides what we need, not necessarily what we want. Church, our contentment in the Lord begins with a confidence in the Lord, a confidence in his promised provision. If he says he'll provide, he will provide. And all that we need... He gives, and all that he gives, he gives for a purpose. And that purpose is that we would receive the Lord's provision with gratitude and joy. All right, so we've seen the first mark of the good shepherd's care. That's the provision of the good shepherd. Let's move on to the second mark, and that's the prompting of the good shepherd. Look at verses 3 and 4. He renews my life. He leads me along right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, there's several characteristics to both the right paths and some of the wrong paths. We'll get to those in a sec. But the right path we see here is the rejuvenated path. He says here, that the, the good shepherd renews my life. Now, a lot of your translations are probably going to say, he restores my soul, and that's perfectly acceptable. The, the reason that this phrase in Psalm 23 is subject to different translation in English, it's pretty simple. Biblical words, uh, biblical languages have a certain uh, semantic range, and determining which words uh, in that range are the most accurate for English translation, really is all about seeing how those words are used in context. Now, since in addition to meaning soul, that Hebrew word nefesh can also be translated as life, that could very well mean that the Lord restores David to physical health. So, you know, it could be either. Either interpretation can certainly be true of the good shepherd. He renews my life or he restores my soul. I love what uh, the, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, wrote in The Treasury of David. That's his commentary on the Psalms. Uh, with regard to the 23rd Psalm, he says, When the soul grows sorrowful, he revives it. When it is sinful, he sanctifies it. When it is weak, he strengthens it. That's a rejuvenated life. The Good Shepherd's Path rejuvenates but understand this church, you know, following God on those paths of righteousness means we also have to be wary of what I call the detrimental path. Now, there's countless wrong paths that exist in this world, and we've seen people, even ourselves sometimes, fall prey to, to a lot of them. <laughs> it makes me think of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, that broad is the path that leads to destruction. But it could be any number of things. It could be paths of selfishness. It could be paths in which you follow your heart. Oh, just follow your heart. and Everything will work out just fine. You know what? That's probably the theme of every movie that involves a Disney princess. Just follow your heart. Well, here's what our friend Jeremiah would say about that. Jeremiah 17.9, he says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Oh, but Eric, the heart wants what the heart wants. Well, you know what? The heart can lie. And so sometimes we have to ask the Lord, Lord, is this thing that I want something that you want for me? Now, sometimes a detrimental path, it could be a path that's focused on self-recognition, on garnering influence or material gain, it could be paths for sexual fulfillment apart from God's design for human sexuality. It could be paths of bareness, of hate, of fear. David spoke of danger in the dark Valley. Now, you know, in in America, we're not really persecuted for the faith like some of our brothers and sisters around the globe who are actually being martyred for the Christian faith. And so maybe physical danger isn't what we fear. I, I like what Maria Stenvinkel wrote. She's a Swedish businesswoman. She said, you've probably experienced it, that paralyzing state hindering you from moving forward or that constant worry running over and over in your mind, we all battle with fear. Fear of failing, looking like fools, or not being loved for who we are. Fear of not being good enough, or smart enough, or courageous enough. No one, no matter gender, age, skin color, social status, or nationality, gets a free pass when it comes to fear. One way to move forward, past your fears, is knowing that you're not alone. You see, for David, even in the dark valley, he had nothing to fear. Now, how can he say that? Five simple words that virtually leap off the page. For you are with me. Because the Lord was with him. As a shepherd with his rod and his staff in hand, providing David with comfort and even boldness on the dark path. Let's unpack that a little bit, shall we? I mean, are you here this morning feeling like you're in a dark valley? Then there's something else I want you to notice about the right paths that the shepherd is leading us on. One of them I call the protected path. Look at the end of verse 4. Your rod comforts me. Now, since the Psalms are a form of Hebrew poetry, they're filled with imagery and figurative language. And so here, the rod is a symbol. Now, first of all, it's a symbol of safety, but the rod also represents God's power. Shepherds are often thought of as, you know, kind of kind and gentle, tending their flocks in peaceful pasture. But you know what? The shepherd also had to protect his flock from wild animals and other dangers. And while the shepherd's rod was made of wood, it was often capped with iron for the killing of predatory beasts. And so I think what you and I are being told here is that our shepherd wields protective power. I mean, think about it. Who knows what dangers God has already protected us from without us even knowing about it. You know, that, that ought to be comforting. There's another aspect to the, the right path. I call it the grace filled path. See, it also says, Your staff comforts me. Now, interesting thing about the shepherd's staff, it had a crook on the end of it. It was often used to pull sheep out of hazardous situations, you know, like thickets or or deep crevices, that kind of thing. Well, the the, the poetic imagery here is a beautiful picture of God's grace. Because when we find ourselves in hazardous situations, uh, and let's be honest, usually ones resulting from our own poor, sinful choices, what is it that pulls us out? It's grace. The Lord's grace pulls us out. The Lord's rod and his staff, his power and his grace comfort the believer even in the darkest of valleys. And here's why. Because the rod and the staff don't exist for our harm, but for our good and for God's glory. Now, now most Christians get what Romans 8.28 is all about. You know We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? That means even the, the sorry, hurtful, difficult, awful stuff that happens in life, God in his sovereignty can still take those things and assign redemptive purpose to them and still use them for our good. We get that. But the idea that even our dark and deadly valleys or for our good and his glory? I think, you know, maybe sometimes that's a lesson that's hard for us to embrace. You know, that God's guidance is for our good, but especially for his glory, that his ultimate motivation is his own glory. You're thinking, wait a second, God, isn't that kind of self-centered? Think about this for a second. If anybody's worthy of glory... Who else would it be? He is our creator, our father, our shepherd, our guide, our redeemer, our healer, our restorer, our rewarder, our soon-coming king. Is there anyone else truly deserving of glory? And why is he leading me in these right paths? For his name's sake. Verse 3. That's the ultimate motivation for his guidance. His name's sake. All that God does is for our good, but especially for his glory. And and understand, those two things are not mutually exclusive. We need to remember, church, that we are not the center of the Lord's universe. (laughs) That reality ought to keep us from getting puffed up with pride. He created us for his glory. He redeems people for his glory. Not much of our culture is about exalting humanity, but the gospel, it's all about exalting God, the right paths for His name's sake. All right, so so far we've seen two marks of the Good Shepherd's care. We've seen the provision of the Good Shepherd. We've seen the prompting of the Good Shepherd. Now let's look at the third thing, the pursuit. Of the Good Shepherd. Look at verses five and six. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Now, one of the things we get a picture of here is David's sanctuary. I want you to note the Lord's hospitality towards David here. You prepare a table before me. You know, Israel's culture valued hospitality. And part of being a gracious host was preparing for and and feeding a guest. Now, when I read verse 5, I get an interesting mental picture. As I'm reading those words in verse 5, I get a picture of Thanksgiving at Granny's house. Now, on Granny's table lay all of the annual favorites that you salivated for. Of course, the turkey and the the dressing and and all of the trimmings. And at the dessert table, all the sweet-to-eat treats that have just tantalized your taste buds. And, And you were surrounded by warmth and laughter and loved ones. But what's unique about the Lord's preparation in this passage? It came in the midst of trouble. David wasn't hanging out with relatives at Granny's house. The Lord prepared a table in in the presence of his enemies. In fact, that's one of the reasons why a lot of Bible scholars think this was written during the time of Absalom's uprising. But even while oppressed with enemies all around, David experienced joy symbolized by his head being anointed with oil which is really a picture of sanctification and he experienced contentment seen here in a cup that's overflowing yeah his enemies may have been waiting to harm him but he was enjoying a good bountiful meal in the presence of the good shepherd oh but stick this in your oven and bake it for a minute where's the joy where's the contentment? Where's the security in life without the good shepherd? I mean, think about Psalm 23 and what it would look like if the good shepherd were removed from our lives. Verse one, I don't have what I need. Verse three, my life is not renewed. I don't walk the right paths. Verse four, there's no comfort I will fear the danger of the darkest valley. Verse five, no security in the presence of my enemies. Verse six, all the days of my life, I will dwell with me. Well, isn't that special? Fortunately, David had the good shepherd. So David had sanctuary. Here's another thing David had. He had Certainty. David was confident that only goodness and faithful love sue me. Now that, that Hebrew word for faithful love, it's it's Hesed. It means basically covenant loyalty. So God's faithfulness to his promises will not just follow David, but will pursue him. In fact, the, the Hebrew verb that's that's used. Here, it's frequently used to describe the pursuit of an enemy. (laughs) Of course, the psalmist's enemies are no longer pursuing him. David is now being pursued by God's goodness and his faithful love. And you know what? This is a pursuit that won't just last a few days and kind of taper off or a few weeks, matter of months. His goodness and faithful love would pursue David for a lifetime. Now, one of the reasons that, that David knew that he could count on God's goodness and faithful love daily for a lifetime was because David had already recognized God's goodness and faithful love in the past. in God choosing him to be king. in God empowering him to defeat Goliath. In God protecting him, sparing his life from the murderous King Saul? You know, but I think maybe there'd been no greater evidence of God's goodness and faithful love in David's life than in God's forgiving David of his adultery with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah. I mean, to to pardon David of such heinous sins... That was an undeserved act of love that surely reverberated throughout the king's life. God's pardon had been sweet. And because of it, David was able to experience a renewal of his fellowship with God. Now, church, there's a point of application here that I don't want y'all to miss, and that's this. King David's life is proof to us that there is no sin so small that God's faithful love and goodness are not necessary. But there's also no sin so great that God's faithful love and goodness can't cover it. And you and I would do well to remember that. Goodness and faithful love pursued David and the then and there. And goodness and faithful love can pursue us in the here and now. How can this be? Well, because the greater David, the greater shepherd, followed God the Father's plan to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter two. The first David took a life to cover his sin, but the second David gave his life to cover our sins and to shepherd us in the right paths on the way to his eternal home. Those words that we heard earlier from Winston Churchill from World War II, I know that they brought comfort and encouragement and, and hope to his people, but you know what? It, it, it wasn't a sure hope. You and I, on the other hand, we can have a sure hope. In fact, if it's not already clear to you who the good shepherd of Psalm 23 is? Jesus spells it out pretty clearly in John chapter 10, verse 11. When he says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who offers provision who offers us guidance, offers us love. It was Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who provided salvation for us by sacrificing himself in our place. And when we come to embrace that knowledge, then we can read this psalm with the sure hope that like David, we will dwell with God forever. The Lord is is my shepherd. Not was, but is. Right now, continually, the same God who hung the stars and poured the oceans and raised the mountains, the master planner of this vast universe is also the architect of your life. The God who knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb, as Jeremiah says. That God is your shepherd and he knows you by name if you ask me that's probably the sweetest purest form of intimacy with God we can ever experience a few verses later in John chapter 10 Jesus said my sheep hear my voice I know them and they follow me I give them eternal life and they will never perish no one will snatch them out of my hand wow What kind of confidence and assurance can we get from that? No one can snatch us from his, not even ourselves. That's John 10, 27 and 28, by the way. You see, the Lord is yours and you are his. But that brings me to a very important question. And for some of you, maybe even an uncomfortable question. Is he truly your shepherd today? In other words, have you come to that point in your life where you've made that conscious commitment to say yes and to trust him for salvation and eternal life? And if not, why put it off any longer? Now, maybe you're here today and you've already made that choice. You've made him your shepherd, but for whatever reason, you're no longer allowing him to be your guide Note what it says in verse three. He leads me along the right paths. Now, what happens when I abandon those paths? Well, here's the thing about a shepherd. A shepherd will often go to extraordinary lengths to find and restore a wayward sheep, even to the point of breaking the sheep's leg. That seems cruel, but here's what happens. When that sheep continues to wander, he breaks its leg, but then he sets the bone. And during that mending process, the shepherd will keep that sheep very close to him. And what happens is the sheep begins to develop a new sense of closeness, a a deeper sense of dependence upon the shepherd. So what that tells me is that when you and I stray from the paths of righteousness, our good shepherd will go to any length, even uncomfortable ones, to restore us to those right paths and to right fellowship. Why? Because he knows that that's the place where we're going to find the fullness of joy. Folks, contrary to popular opinion, the happiest place on earth is not Disneyland. It's right smack dab in the middle of God's will. That's where the joy is. You know, shepherds will also tell you that pregnant ewes, they'll wander away from the flock. And whenever that mama sheep goes into labor, she immediately sits down. But if she's facing downhill when she sits, she'll stay in that direction, fighting against gravity to push the lamb out of the womb. And if no one helps her, she will die in that position rather than simply turn around. Now, I think we can often be like that stubborn animal. We face life's trials and, and hardships with the attitude that, hey, I, I got this. I can conquer this myself. Or I'm living life on my terms, not yours, God. We'll do it our way. Well, guess what? This ain't Laverne and Shirley. This is real life. And what we need to do is to stop and look to the shepherd and just discover the peace and the joy and the restoration that come by simply turning around, making about face. That's what that word repent means. It means to turn around, change your mind, go the other way. And we've all been in that position. One of the most beautiful messianic prophecies you'll ever read in the Old Testament is found in Isaiah 53. The prophet Isaiah there, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's right. The good shepherd paid the price for our rebellion. So I got to ask, Christian, are you here today needing to make a course correction? Or maybe you're here today and you're not yet part of the shepherd's flock. Folks, if if you've never come to that point in life where you've admitted to God that you're a sinner and need a forgiveness and salvation, I I invite you to do that today. Why? Well, very simply because we can't save ourselves. We don't get to heaven by being a good person. We can never be good enough or perfect enough to enter into God's holiness. Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 64 that in the sight of God, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Paul said in Romans 3.10 that there's none righteous, not even one. In fact, he goes on to say in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, 8, and 9, hey, it's not by our works that we're saved. It's by grace through faith. He says something similar in Titus 3.5, that not by our works of righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saved us. You see, salvation and eternal life have absolutely nothing to do with what we can do. It has everything to do with what Jesus has already done for us. So i got to ask, are you ready to accept his free gift of eternal life? And yes, it's free. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. That means because of our sin, we will be eternally separated from God. But he goes on to say the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, he said, believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the mouth, confession is meant into salvation. With the heart, man believes to righteousness. He says in Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you ready to say, God, I know I'm a sinner and I'm lost without you. I confess my sin, I turn from it and I'm committing my life to you by trusting Jesus for forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Father, thank you that you love us so much. that you provide, you guide. Lord, that your faithful love and your goodness will pursue your children all of our days. Father, we know that life's not easy. We know there's dark valleys. But Father, we thank you for your presence with us as you carry us through those dark valleys. No, you don't always take away our hurt. You don't always take away our pain, but Father, if we'll trust you, you'll give us the grace and the strength to endure. Father, I pray for folks in the room today who've never come to that crucial moment of decision where they've said yes to Jesus and received his free gift of eternal life. I pray for Christians who maybe just need to make a course adjustment Maybe they haven't been walking in obedience to your calling or your will for their lives. I pray that you'd speak to their hearts today as well. God, thank you for salvation in Jesus' name because we know that there's salvation in no other name. And it's in that name of Jesus that I pray and ask these things, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information to make a commitment, Or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.